Hi, everyone. I'm Liam Sanyo from Inside Scientific, your favorite online source for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content helping you do your best work. This episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Sam Sternberg, Assistant Professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biophysics at Columbia University, who recently joined us for a webinar where he presents a new CRISPR-Cas9 system using programmable RNA-guided transposés and highlights its implications for kilobase-scale genome engineering in cell and gene therapies. Let's jump right in. Sam, to get things started, are these CAST systems at risk of inserting the genetic payload more than once? Uh, really good question. Yeah, as many of you may have noticed, I kind of pointed out that instead of interrupting the target site, the insertion happens at a fixed distance downstream. And so there is a risk that if you have prolonged expression of all the components, what's to stop the system from inserting the same payload over and over? It turns out, as something we've published, that doesn't, it happens extremely infrequently because of something known as target site immunity. The details don't matter, but in short, we don't think that's going to be a common outcome, but we're looking very carefully at it. And then as with Cas9-based editing approaches, I think the classic use will eventually be transient delivery by either mRNA or purified protein so that you get a very short-term expression long enough to get your editing product, but not so long that you start hitting off-target sites or very rare tandem insertions. Awesome. Great answer. I think you mentioned efficiency a little bit towards the end, but is the technology so efficient that the primary editing outcome is homozygous integration? Yeah, good question. So in truth, we haven't really started, we haven't really looked at that in great detail yet, but I think it's almost certain that at 1%, we're not going to have, we're going to have very few cells that are homozygous. So right now, the way we quantified our data was just the percent of sequenced alleles that contain the insertion. So those are averaging across the multiple alleles in the cell and all the alleles in the population. We're now doing things like isolating clones to kind of quantify that on a clonal basis. But you know, I think rather than looking too deeply at that, we're really focusing our attention on getting the bulk efficiencies into the double digits, as high to the double digits as we can get. And then I think we can start being more methodical about quantifying heterozygous, homozygous knock-ins, et cetera. Excellent. Nice question here. Do you think there are any opportunities for multiplexing? So, for example, the simultaneous insertion of GFP, RFP, and BFP at specific uh, genomic loci without uh, cross-insertion? Oh, I love that question. Absolutely. So we've done, we had a Nature Biotech paper a couple of years ago in bacteria, but just spelling out many of the fundamental capabilities agnostic to the cell type. And we showed that you can do multiplex insertions very efficiently. The beauty of these systems is, again, they're RNA-guided. And it's very easy with the particular type of CAS system we're using to generate multiple guides in the same transcription unit. I think with Cas9, sometimes that's challenging. And so you get these clunky tandem U6 promoter-driven sgRNAs. We can kind of nest a bunch of guides all in a single U6-driven transcriptional unit. It spontaneously gets bound by multiple different CRISPR complexes. And then, yes, we've shown that you can do multiplex insertion. And we have furthermore shown that different CAS systems are orthogonal for their payloads. I've actually written some grants with some cool and fun experiment ideas, like combining 
two casts. One will put insertion A at site X, and another will put insertion B at site Y, where you'd have complete control over multiple payloads going in kind of user-defined sites. So I think from kind of a SIN bio and cell engineering perspective, in the future, once we get all these efficiencies higher, there's going to be a lot of fun things we can do to kind of really decorate the genome with diverse payloads. And by the way, there's nothing to stop you from using a cast to make an insertion here, using a base editor to simultaneously make a base pair modification there. And so we're thinking a lot about the ways to kind of harness all these different editing strategies in parallel. Yeah, super cool. Really exciting stuff. Bit of a personal question here, but uh, when you started your lab, did you specifically seek to study the CAS macromolecules associated with mobile genetic elements, or did the genome search data lead you to them? Yeah, really nice question. We are now doing a lot more of our own bioinformatic mining. I mean, the challenge with bioinformatics is you can't really deal with the scale of data and just say, let's look for cool stuff. You usually have to have a specific type of query you're following up on. And I think what's challenging is that the reason cache systems were invisible for so long is because if you look at the 15 years of CRISPR discovery, it was almost universally looking for a CRISPR array blanked by a CRISPR-associated gene and always looking for things that are within a few kilobase pairs of each other. These cache systems have the CRISPR and the CRISPR genes thousands of base pairs away from the transposase genes. And so a neighborhood analysis would never have seen those because they're not as tightly clustered in 1D space. And so now we're trying to think, how can we go outside the box to find things that don't conform to the kind of paradigms or expectations we have today? In the case of casts, we very much followed others' work that had first uncovered these oddities looking at genomes. And then we did our own bioinformatics and kind of dug deeper and designed the experiments. But now we're really trying to take a much more agnostic, all-encompassing genomics approach. Because I think, I hope I you know, convinced you that transposases are so pervasive and they work in so many different ways that there's no doubt we're not gonna find transposases that don't fit in any of the buckets I already showed you. And it's just a matter of how do we look for them and study them. And that's something that we're spending a lot of our time thinking about right now. Awesome. All right, there's a handful of questions here about applications in mammalian cells and eukaryotic cells. How do you envision delivering the CAS systems in vivo, or do you think maybe early translational studies might be, you know, ex vivo editing and writing? Yeah, I think certainly the same way that all of the kind of um, therapeutics companies, even with CAS9, which is more easily portable with current methods, they are pretty much all starting with ex vivo therapies because it really simplifies the delivery paradigm. And as you'll hear at any CRISPR conference, delivery is the first, second, and third major obstacle to therapeutic use in patients. So ex vivo mitigates a little bit of that challenge, although it's, it's still not easy. You still have to be very worried about cytotoxicity of your delivery reagent. But certainly that's where we're going to start. Eventually, you know, we're with the cystic fibrosis work that we're now beginning, we're teaming up with a, a lipid nanoparticle scientist thinking about um, generating new kinds of LMPs that are particularly well suited to accommodate mixed payloads of RNA and DNA. And so we're going to move more towards mRNA delivery, guide RNA, and then, of course, the donor DNA. We're thinking about viral vectors. Right now, the CAS systems are fairly large, so we probably need two AAVs. 
But again, we're doing engineering to see if we can make them more compact. But yeah, we're starting with cells in the laboratory. And I think that's, you know, if we were zooming ahead of the future, that's where we would start with preclinical experiments as well. But I think there's lots of opportunities to piggyback on all the work that's been done with Cas9 and use some of the same approaches down the, down the road. Cool. Yeah, it sounds like you got a lot of really cool stuff going on. Love to hear it. So you talked a bit about the size of the, the payload and how it, it affects the efficiency, I believe. So what was the size of the, the largest payload that you've ever managed to integrate using CAST? So I think we went up to 15 in the paper. So there's some data in the recent Nature Biotech paper on that. I had a really cool meeting recently with someone using CAST systems in bacteria. This is less relevant for mammalian cells, but I thought it was pretty darn cool. They're basically doing the following experiment. They use conjugation to deliver an entire chromosome from a donor bacterium into E. coli, but they've put transposon ends in the donor chromosome, and they have succeeded to make a targeted insertion of 2.1 million base pairs of DNA using CAST. So that just gives you a sense that, I mean, all CAST cares about are the two ends coming together, and the rest of the payload is just up here. It doesn't care. The transposase doesn't care. So I don't think there's probably a physical limit. The limit is defined by getting the DNA into the cell. So in bacteria, you can deliver megabases of DNA through conjugation. That's going to be harder in human cells because I've never heard of someone delivering a million base pairs with a virus or plasmid like perfection. But I think the machinery should not have any upper limits on what it can tolerate, provided that the two ends are present and can be synapsed together. That's super cool. How do you see CRISPR-Cas9 based editing methods advancing in the future alongside other approaches like prime editing or cast editing? Yeah, you know, I think if you look at just the phenomenal pace of development in the clinical trial space and in the kind of private industry space, I mean, I think it's pretty staggering that in 10 years we went from 2013, the first published examples of using Cas9 in human cells in the lab, to now dozens of clinical trials where we're dosing patients in vivo or ex vivo with Cas9. And there's been hundreds of improvements to the technology, higher accuracy, higher efficiency, chemically modified guides that have a longer lifetime in vivo. So I, I think it's just phenomenal. And it's, it's really, I mean, I don't know if you could have imagined the pace being that quick in 2013. So it's hard to make predictions, but I think, you know, I do think we're gonna see fewer uses of cast on nuclease in the future. And we're gonna see more and more reliance on controlled strategies like base editing and prime editing. And of course, we would hope that cast editing makes its way into the picture as well, because for large gene insertions, we see them as being safer than random viral vector integration. So we're gonna keep working hard and try to make that a reality. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.